We should all do like a little Howard Dean scream. <laughs> Just get in the spirit. Can I do a silent one? Can go I, into can this I... state and go into that state. And then you like fist bumps and goes, it, yeah! Yeah, exactly. Right? Very mm-hmm. good. That yeah, was, that that was, was okay. That was close. That was really Is anyone going to join me in this Dean scrimmage? It's, it's gonna, I'm going to do it kind of small. Like, Go ahead, do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Welcome to the first episode of the NPR Politics Podcast. Hi, I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter for NPR. And if you don't know the Dean scream, Google it. I'm Tamara Keith. I'm covering the White House and the Democratic candidates for NPR. I'm Ron Elving, editor and correspondent. And I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. So we got to say right out of the gate to those hearing this bright eyed Friday morning, we will not always be here for you first thing Friday a.m. Most of the time we'll post our weekly roundups Friday afternoon. So that way we can fit in every single last bit of late breaking news from the week. But this is our first week and we were just so excited to get this sucker out. So we're just going to run through the stuff that happened this week in the world of politics. The GOP debate that was, the Democratic debate that will be this weekend, and we'll talk about Hillary Clinton laughing at a guy who said he wanted to strangle Carly Fiorina, the only other woman that's running for president. And we're going to end the show with something we call Can't Let It Go, something political or otherwise that we just can't stop thinking about. But first, the debate that was. Republican presidential candidates met for a fourth debate Tuesday night in Milwaukee. The debate's main focus was on the economy. Um, But who wants to catch us up on this debate and what happened? Uh, You know, I always like to talk about these debates. I I, I found that uh, there was very little change in the overall impression of any of the candidates. There was a lot of attention paid to the fact that the moderators did not challenge them the way the moderators had in the first three debates, especially the CNBC debate. And it kind of didn't matter because the candidates largely ignored the questions anyway, <laughs> just the way they ignored the little bell that went off when they were supposed that to stop. That was the most weak sauce bell. And if a candidate goes over their allotted time, you'll hear this. It was so weak and annoying. It was a doorbell. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, it was a doorbell, and I think they all figured somebody else would answer it. So oh. they they simply ignored it, and they talked over each other on many occasions. They just talked over each other on many. They just talked over each other on many <laughs> occasions. I see what you're doing. So that part of it was yeah. bothers. But there was an actual policy debate. Kind of, it broke out between Rand Paul and Marco Rubio mm-hmm. on kind of the nature of conservatism and how much we spend on national security. Like well, that, not just not just national security. And let's no, just catch folks up that didn't see it. Go ahead. Sure. Danielle. Yeah. So it wasn't just national security. It started out when Marco Rubio was explaining his tax plan, which includes a huge refundable child States. tax credit. Child care costs more than college. There are millions of people watching this broadcast tonight that understand exactly what I'm talking uh, about. And then Rand Paul interrupted and said, I don't understand how this is conservative. The point that I'd like to make about the tax credits, we have to decide what is conservative and what isn't conservative. Is it fiscally conservative to have a trillion dollar expenditure? He called it a welfare transfer. He's talking about giving people money they didn't pay. It's a welfare transfer payment. Which is, is a dirty word in this crowd. And then the conversation segued into yeah. all spending on defense as well, which is a touchier subject. You cannot be a conservative if you're going to keep promoting new programs that you're not going to pay for. I may respond more quickly. Yeah. Quick we can't even have an economy if we're not safe. There are radical jihadists in the Middle East. Well, Rand, Rand Paul represents that group of Republicans who really do want to spend less money and make the government much smaller. And not across just, all departments. Across all departments, mm-hmm. including the military. Yeah. And with a lot of emphasis on the military because that is such a huge part of federal expenditure. And they don't want to create or expand any existing entitlements. And then, you know, we hear from Marco Rubio and some of the others who chimed in on his side, which was more of the Ronald Reagan kind of approach, which was we can expand the military, be the greatest military power ever. 
whatever, and we can cut taxes drastically, and we don't have to reduce spending on anything else if it's painful. Um, you know, speaking of Rubio, he made some comments about a certain type of college major. Oh, Tamara, if <laughs> y- I'm correct. Indeed, can you did. catch us up on that? So what he said was something to the effect of, we need more welders, not more philosophers. Training For the life of me, I don't know why we have stigmatized vocational education. Welders make more money than philosophers. We need more welders and less philosophers. So fact check, welders do not earn more than philosophers, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics data. Um, right, well, so I... I look, mean, it isn't quite... It, it isn't it, it, an apples to apples. No, it's, it certainly wasn't. But I mean, like, so first of all, welders, uh, there, there were a few classes of welders that the BLS lists. But I mean, within all of those classes, the average annual income was somewhere five to $40,000. Uh, philosophy professors, which is which is a isn't exactly a philosopher. Um, they earn they earn about seventy five thousand, seventy thousand, something like that. Yeah, a lot more than welders. Do we right. need a full disclosure here? Oh, you're a philosophy major. Philosophy major. I knew it was either that or welding, and I just wanted you to pick a side. <laughs> the the undergraduate kind of philosophy. I was, which means? I mean, my dad made fun of me a lot. He said, "Oh, maybe you could open a philosophy shop in the Whole Foods." He said that dad joke. <laughs> a dad joke. But here's the a thing: dad joke alarm. It is <laughs> it is critical thinking. But but that but that's the candidate's point, isn't it? That you're as a philosopher, you're breaking things down, whereas welders are building things up. And the thing with Rubio's <laughs> comments. He hasn't been the first GOP candidate to kind of take a crack at the soft sciences or the humanities majors. We know that Jeb Bush made the comment about psychology Psychology majors majors. working in Chick-fil-A's. And then I was with Ben Carson this week. And during a speech he gave at Liberty University, he was talking about how as a child, his mother made he and his brother write these book reports. And all of his friends would say, why are you doing this? It doesn't matter. And then he says this. You know, people are always saying to me, why did you do it? Your mother was always working. She wouldn't have known whether you read the books or not. Yes, she would have. And back in those days, you had to do what your parents told you. You know, there was no social psychologist saying, let the kid express themselves, you know. So. And the crowd loved it. It's like as soon as you said social, they were like, oh, yep. So it's, I mean, this is a thread. And I'm of not course. sure what the candidates are trying to say when they say it, but it's a threat. Well, and and let's just go to the record here. Marco Rubio, a uh, political science major. Jeb Bush, Latin American, Latin American studies S- major. Yeah. Yep. But but let's just say that that both those majors have worked out fairly well for those two individuals. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's part and of that's the point. And that's it. Liberal arts degrees are fine. People, they're fine. They're great. College is right. college is college. But, 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 but hold on. Like, we're sitting in our ivory tower saying liberal arts degrees are great defending them. Listen, Marco Rubio is speaking to a nation of people. Partic- he is speaking to people who are not us, who have not been to college, to people who want to get an education, who want a steady job that is not standing behind a counter. And he's saying you can get an education. You can do something worthwhile. And it doesn't have to be that philosophy major. It doesn't have to be this model. There's a model in between. So I, I double it. majored in political science and music composition. I was like, it, it was useless times useless. Anyway, right. you, you, you can my, write campaign jingles. My, ulti- I, my ultimate point here is that Marco Rubio is not talking to us. He's not talking to the reporters. He's appealing to this anti- anti-elitist thing that Republicans often appeal to. And uh, not just Republicans, Democrats do it as well. And it works it with does. the hmm. many people who really are economically struggling. And, and, and I think that's why these sorts of things really resonate with so people. So thinking I of can see things that resonated, like who was the most resonant in this debate? I would say Marco 
Marco Rubio. Okay. Because he has further solidified his claim to being someone who appeals both to establishment Republicans and to more Tea Party type people. He came in the Tea Party Revolution in 2010. He was part of that in Florida. He has some claim on that group, and he has some claim on the establishment. And as Jeb fades, and he had a fine debate, he was fine. He just wasn't really consequential, and he didn't make any big mistakes. That's fine. But if he continues to fade, as he has, Marco Rubio will benefit from that. And we also saw Ted Cruz starting to throw some subtle little shots throw some subtle little things over about what goes on in Florida and mistakes that were made in Florida. He's taking aim at Marco because he sees Marco as the biggest threat. Not to get all horse racy on you, but I feel like after every single Republican debate, lots of very smart people have said, Marco Rubio did really well. Marco Rubio outperformed the others. Marco Rubio really shined. This is going to be Marco Rubio's moment. So why isn't he rising in the polls? Yeah. Is that your question? That is my question. Well, I think it's a very good question. And I think it's partly because most people, even when they have big audiences, these debates don't get most of the viewers, of course. And the people who are watching probably already have some kind of identification with some of the other candidates. But the other thing is he shines in debates and he is very young. He's only 44 and he's introducing himself to the country for the first time. So it's a little bit like Barack Obama in 2007. He's sneaking up on people. We see it coming. Maybe a lot of other people who are regular voters will only see it when it comes to their state in the primary season. But yeah. he is rising. So there's going to be another debate this week, a debate mm-hmm. on Saturday mm-hmm. between those other ones, the Democrats. What should we expect with that? Well, there will only be three people on that stage this and time. And where is it? It is at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. Okay. Woo! I uh, will be there. All right. Party or something. <laughs> or not. Hey, uh, <laughs> the Democratic for, Party will be yeah, The I Democratic will. Party will be there in force. So what's uh, it going to be like? What's it going to be about? I think the big question is, in the last debate, the last Democratic debate, at one point, Bernie Sanders throws Hillary Clinton what seems like a lifeline. And that is that the American people are sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails. Thank you. Me too. Me too. You know, I I think that his supporters said, oh, look at Bernie. He said he wasn't going to go negative, and he took the high road. I think that's what his supporters saw. There's there's another interpretation, that he fumbled something that was meant to have a very different effect. Mm -hmm. He was going to say, your emails have become such a distraction, and people are so tired of hearing about your emails, that this has really become something that's going to seriously cripple you, and therefore us as the Democratic Party alternative. But Bernie's not the attack dog. Bernie has never really, it seems like, wanted to serve that role, right? And so that is the question of this debate. The question of this debate is, Bernie Sanders, since that debate, less him and more his people have been drawing contrasts. They've been saying, you know, how could somebody not have made up their mind on TPP, the the Trans-Pacific Trade (laughs) Deal, until the very last minute? How could somebody have not made up their mind on Keystone all along? How could, you know, and and I think that the real question is, does Bernie Sanders stand up there next to her and make these contrasts and and try to make her look like a wishy-washy, triangulating opportunist? Or does Bernie just do the Bernie thing and not go on the attack, not make those contrasts? Which would be most beneficial for him, you think? Well, that's a good question. I think that some of his advisors think that he really that, you know, he's sort of plateaued. Yeah. It, it, you know, Bernie has has reached the people that he's reached and he he is not climbing the way he was initially. Yeah, he's got and, all the Dartmouth students. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and well, actually he has 
and and I love this line. He has everyone who is 18 to 25 years old and anyone who is 18 to 25 years old when Bobby Kennedy was shot. <laughs> That's 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 nice. Whoever came <laughs> Who up with that? Who told you that one? Yeah, that's I like excellent. that. I think that's it very was, good. Uh, on background. Okay, let's say. okay, okay. And so the question is: Does attacking Hillary help him expand those who would support him, or does it alienate those who support him because of his purity? Because he isn't like every other politician. If he starts going after her on a debate stage, does he just start looking like, oh my God, an actual politician? So, Ron, if Sanders goes on the attack against Hillary. How does Hillary react? I suspect what she would try to do would be to look a little surprised, a little wounded, as if, gee, I, I, I thought we were... Kind of the Rick Lazio yeah, moment? Yeah, I thought we were sort of on the same team here. I'm, I'm not sure exactly why you're asking me that question now, Bernie, but... You know, the first debate seemed to be very different, you know, with the implication that she, he's been advised to be more strategically attack dog and then answer the question. And she is pretty good at responding, as we saw in the Benghazi hearings. She's pretty good at turning she that back. She usually does well when she's attacked. Yes. And as as, as was true that, yeah. of yeah. that other person named Clinton who used to be president, uh, best moments came under the greatest pressure. Mm-hmm. Worst moments came when seemingly... It was clear sailing. Yeah. So the stumbles come when things go well. And back up against the wall, the Clintons fight back very well. We'll be watching Saturday night. And also some guy named Martin O'Malley will be there. But okay. Mm. Um, So next topic. Um, Hillary Clinton was asked a question by a guy recently at a town hall event, I guess. This guy had been laid off from HP Hewlett Packard. And Carla Fiorina, who was running for president on the Republican side. Former HP executive. Exactly. Yes. And during his question to Clinton, he said that he wanted to strangle Fiorina when he sees her on TV. And she says she's a great CEO. Every time I see her on TV, I want to reach through and strangle her. <laughs> you know, I, I know that doesn't sound very nice. But... And I, can... I wouldn't mess with you. <laughs> Tam, you were there. Explain. I was, in fact, there, and I interviewed him before the event, uh, and he was really upset. He told me the same thing he told her, minus the strangling, uh, which is <laughs> that, you know, they were they were told that they were being laid off to cut costs, and then Carly Fiorina went out and got new private planes for HP right after that, and how dare her, and when I see her on TV, it just makes me so mad. So that's that's the context, is he's a disabled veteran. He's actually a volunteer for the Clinton campaign. Oh. Wow. Yeah, which... That's, yeah, that, doesn't, that doesn't look good. And, it, it and good then, I, you know, Hillary Clinton was at this event to, to talk about veterans, and this is the political world we live in, right? Where if you are a candidate and someone says something crazy in your presence or something somewhat inappropriate in your presence, if you don't slap it down, then the outrage machine. Yeah, but also comes like I life. kind of got some of the outrage because yeah. like oh, any yeah. person, if anyone says I want to strangle this stranger that I don't know, anyone should say, ah, that's bad. I right? understand. I understand mm-hmm. your strong feelings. I, I I I understand that you feel very very strongly about this, and but I I know that you don't mean it when you say that you would strangle her. That I know that's that would have been a buzzkill. That's all she had to it's say. It's a buzzkill and the the room was laughing. They weren't taking the guy seriously when he used that word. And so she tried to just sort of, if you will, neutralize the moment by treating it lightly. But that doesn't work because then it gets bitten off and put on 
social media and played as just a six or seven second thing where he says strangle, she laughs and says, well, <laughs> I wouldn't mess with you. Yeah. And there's a there's a tacit approval in taking it lightly. Exactly. When in so, fact, it was like a minute and a half long exchange. And, and she was just trying right. to get him to, to, to shut up, I'm sure. But but it's it. It, you have to remember that even in a tiny moment like that, you can look like you're endorsing this person's bad behavior and bad choice of words. And she didn't do that. She laughed. And that wasn't the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, you know, there's there's one more piece of news from this week that just feels really big and that there's just no way that we can't talk about it. It's been all over my social media feeds the entire week. Um, I'm talking about what's going on with student protests at the University of Missouri. Um, Just to catch people up, this is a big state school in Missouri, uh, not too far from Ferguson. But over the last few months, there have been several racial incidents. Uh, The black student body president was called the N-word while walking down the street. Another group of black students were accosted by a white person who called them some slurs. There was a swastika scrawled on a wall there on campus in feces, and the black students there on campus complained for months that the university president, uh, Tim Wolf, did not respond to these complaints and not take them seriously and was too quiet. Um, After protests and after a graduate student uh, went on a hunger strike, he stepped down. And what I'm seeing in this moment and what I'm seeing with Black Lives Matter is that there is this new wave of young black protesters that are doing things in a purposefully disruptive manner. And they have already upended some things in the way that we police across the country. They're already changing the way things are happening on college campuses. We're seeing that now because these protests are not just at Mizzou. They've spread to, I think, Ithaca. There's stuff going on at Yale and other schools. Should we expect this kind of disruptive protest to happen, to trend in a way that's going to touch this campaign in some way. Am I wrong to assume that? No, no. No, we've already seen disruptions at a Bernie Sanders event or two. We've seen one at a Hillary event that went on for, that is the disruption portion of the event, went on for like half an hour. And uh, there were a number of iconic civil rights leaders at the Hillary Clinton event, and they went down to the protesters and tried to persuade them to be less disruptive or to stay, but to be quiet for a little while. And they were not successful. So there is a growing sense that the movement of the past has failed the young people of today, particularly in the black community. There are feelings of that kind in other communities of young people as well, but particularly in the black community because I think of the police violence uh, that we have seen forever, but we have seen on videotape so often in the past year. And the videotape is what makes the difference. And, and you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has forced, at least on the Democratic side, though I think come the general election, it will be a force in the general election too. But it has forced these candidates to be very public, to be more thoughtful and more deliberative about their policies on criminal justice and on social justice than they've been in the past. In the past, Democrats have been able to just say, we're with you. Exactly. We're here yeah. for you. I loved and, Martin Luther King. <laughs> yeah. And, and I marched with that guy. Mm-hmm. And then that's all they had ago. to do. Exactly. And now that is not it's enough. not enough. And like, has any but, candidate even gotten it right yet? And, and, and I mean, like, as far as responding to these protesters, you know, Hillary's met with them. Bernie Sanders has met with them. Martin O'Malley has Martin met O'Malley with has, them. And even like the Democratic Party passed a resolution about Black Lives Matter issues. And then Black Lives Matter promptly rejected the resolution. Like, I mean, we keep bringing up Democrats as well. At what point does this affect Republicans, if at all? Forgive me if this is an obtuse question. No, this is a good question. I don't know, actually. I don't know. I had asked DeRay, um, who is one of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement. His full name is DeRay McKesson, correct? Yes, DeRay McKesson. Uh, 
at DeRay on Twitter. And he said, you know, eventually we do want to talk to the Republicans, but we feel like right now the Democrats are the ones who are more likely to, to want to talk to us. Sure. Yeah. I read a fascinating column on this phenomenon by Daniel Dresner this week. In uh, which, which Was- Washington Post. Okay. And it was a great column, not just about these protests in particular, but about the way that social media is playing a huge part in these big debates that are blowing up at colleges, that what we see in the media, what all the outside sees is just these limited snippets of, you know, a woman yelling at an administrator or of this thing or of that thing. And it flattens it. You only we only see the theatrical parts and we're not seeing, you know, what the culture at any of these colleges is like, what the debate is like at all. We're just seeing bits and pieces of it. And I'm th- and one of the things that Dan Dresner said, he wasn't talking about the pr- these pr- protesters in particular. He was speaking more broadly, but a big function of what happens at college is that students and administrators, whoever, people are allowed to voice debates over, you know, over things that are not talked about in the rest of the public sphere. People hash it out and things pass and things go on. And what happens with social media is that things don't pass. It's that the rest mm-hmm. of the world weighs in yeah. and things don't resolve. Exactly. Instead, they just blow up and become worse. And we end up with this situation where students at at the University of Missouri are protesting some serious stuff like swastikas drawn in feces on dorm room walls. And we're comparing that and talking about that in the same sentence with Yale, where they're literally mad about whether or not a dean said something about Halloween costumes. Right. And so that is almost, I don't want to say it's problematic, but when the Internet and social media decide that this thing is a thing, they lump a lot of different pieces together that might not actually need to be lumped together. Totally true, yeah. I So my, my last thought on this, I predict a large contingent faction movement, something from Black Lives Matter protesters or the like at the conventions. Oh, yeah. They're sure. going to disrupt these conventions. I well, call it now. Well, I, Cleveland, I guess, Philadelphia. Sure. Well, I mean... I think this wave of protests at colleges, it's just, I mean, I think we're going to see more of them before the before the election happens. And I don't maybe this is a thing that really ups turnout uh, among young voters who notably have lower turnouts than uh, than older generations in, in the next election. Just the sense of whether it's Black Lives Matter, student debt, polarization, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's switch gears. Have some fun. It's time for Can't Let It Go. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> Seriously? Okay, now it's time for Can't Let It Go. Awesome. We are all Jimmy Falloning today. Yeah, we got it. We got it. Laughing at our own joke. Got it. Ooh, I didn't, but all that right. was a joke I'll I was not man. prepared for. And sing. Okay. Can't Let It Go. When we talk about the thing we just can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise, Tam, what is the thing that you just can't let go this week? So uh, on what day was it? It was the day after the Republican debate. So I Wednesday? Was Wednesday morning. Okay. I was getting some pastries at the Radisson in Manchester, New Hampshire. Oh, fancy. And uh, who do I run into but Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham. Which is entourage. Is he working there? Uh, well, so... <laughs> Ron. Oh, Ron. Ron. I, I, I'm, I, this I, is a candidate for president. He could have been about. working on his campaign. And, and so Senator Lindsey Graham, the reason I was at the Radisson is because Donald Trump was doing this big event, the politics and eggs breakfast. It's like a yeah, it's yeah. a New Hampshire institution. Definitely. a thing. And when Donald Trump does it, apparently like the way Donald Trump does anything, it is a very big thing. So it's huge. It's huge. huge. And there was this huge line that was wrapping all the way around the restaurant 
And Lindsey Graham is sitting alone, looking at a line of people wearing Make America Great Again hats. Poor Lindsey. Did you talk to him? I didn't have the... All I could think to ask him was, are you still having fun? And then that didn't seem fair. And, And he was on the way to a Veterans Day event, which I later learned had been rained out. Oh, this brings back to the forefront of my mind again. My big question with him running, what does he want? What does he get from this? What is the point? He's always been about changing the debate on the military side. He wants to get people to pay more attention to what he sees as the horrendous under-preparation of our military forces and the fact that we're not projecting more power in the Middle East and some of those other parts of the world that are hot right now. He and John McCain feel very strongly that we are allowing our military to hollow out, as they say, and we're not paying enough attention to the Department of Defense. So, I mean, but it's like, okay, you, you have this message that could resonate But it doesn't resonate if you can't make a debate. I mean, like he at what point does he get that message out? He doesn't, because right now we are under the tyranny of public opinion polls, which are running our entire presidential system in terms of choosing a new president. The primaries probably will run the next fall system as well. And if you aren't up to a certain artificially set number in terms of the polls, you don't get on the debate Which is what, like 2% now or 1%? It was 1% Mm -hmm. this last time to get in the kiddie table debate, and he didn't make that even that. He's not resonating. But many of the pollsters just aren't even asking about him anymore. He's off the map. Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, he's trying to do it the old-fashioned way. He's trying to do it the way John McCain did yeah. it, which is like going to every pub and diner in every tiny corner of New Hampshire and meeting people and talking to people that was like and talking years to two ago, people. Right? So, 1999. so long ago, you yes. can't, like, this is a different time. Yes, yeah, Lindsay the straight is partying talk, like it's yeah. 1999. And the Straight Talk Express just isn't yeah. the same. Anyway, yeah, poor Lindsay. Ron, what can you not let go this week? The Force. And I'm not talking about the new Star Wars movie. I'm talking about the deportation force, which Donald Trump has promised us to remove 11 million people who are in this country illegally. And that means no matter where they are, and even when we don't know where they are, and even when we don't know who they are, and when they're living with other people who are here legally, they are going to be uprooted and sent back to whatever country they're from. Uh, There's been one estimate that this would cost hundreds of billions of dollars. Trump himself says it would take a period of years to achieve, and we would have to create a new force because you can't ask the police in every city to do this and nothing else. You can't ask the army to do it. They have other jobs. So there would have to be a new force, and he's been talking about this quite openly. It's not as though it's some sort of secret, but he wants to create a operation that takes all these people out of the country and he wants to call it a deportation force. I would I mean which the of course obvious irony is that you know this is a guy running for the party that wants to shrink everything. So Danielle, what could you not let go this week? Uh, that question in the undercard debate this week. The undercard debate of course kids table debate. Right. Nobody <laughs> talks about it. It just sort of happens and you know people tweet about it and that's it. But the question where the Fox Business moderators ask the candidates name a democrat you admire. No one could answer it. No one even made a move at answering it. Oh, that's it not was, nice. I mean, and it's, what did they say? Oh, oh gosh, they went off on. They pretty much just said anything they wanted. Rachel Maddow had. They did this forum last Friday where all the Democrats appeared, and I think she asked Hillary Clinton, 
Name one Republican who you would be willing to make your vice president. <laughs> right. What did she say? She also did not answer. Right. She was I mean, like, I could really do somebody some damage right about now if oh. I named them. Oh, yeah. And, and then she even refused to name them. Right. It's, I mean, it's on, it's on both sides. So, so this is about, you know, politics being awful and polarized. But also it's about, like, moderators, if you really wanted an answer to that question, you could have pressed them a little more. But you didn't. And it's like they all need, like, a Tina Fey Mean Girls intervention when she <laughs> makes the whole high school go to the gym and Wait, just talk it out. They all need to do a trust fall? Is this what you're saying? I'm, I love trust all falls. All the candidates <laughs> do a trust fall? All right. Let's do that. Okay. All right, Sam, what about you? What can't you let go? Uh, okay. There's this thing I see happen in every debate, both sides of the aisle, that annoys me consistently each time. It's when these candidates are giving their closing arguments or making some point in these debates and they shout out their website. I hate it so much. <laughs> well, why do they do that? We know how to find you on the internet. We know how to Google you, okay? Like, why are you doing that? So the thing with Ted Cruz, though, and he's Mr. Shoutout, Ted Cruz is actually tedcruz.org, not tedcruz.com. And if you go is... to tedcruz.com, he doesn't own that. But here's the oh. thing, though. I feel like I, like most other people, if I wanted to find a candidate's website, I would just Google their name, and that would take me to the right site, correct? I wonder if a bit of it is that the the people that vote, i.e., like, older Americans vote a lot more than younger Americans, and older Americans are less tech-savvy. But maybe are they, they're, than younger maybe they're like, I've got to go to but the are, World Wide Web. <laughs> where's my Netscape Navigator? I feel I mean, like, like my are grandma they, might need that. Are they... Are they sitting by the debate watching with a notepad and pencil writing down these URLs? Yeah. HTTP colon slash slash. Like, I just, it, I, it burns me up. You know, they pay their web people a lot of money for something. Yeah, something. All right. That's all we got for this week. And our website is www. No, we're not going to. HTTP um, colon slash slash NPRpolitics.org. Look at that. Someone's on it. All right, we want to thank our friends, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, for letting us steal their format a bit for this show. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, you guys. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter here at NPR. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and uh, and the campaign. Ron Elvey, editor correspondent. Uh, Daniel Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. All right, we will see you next time on the NPR Politics Podcast. Bye.